Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so excited that you decided to spend part of your day here with me. I have a great guest for you today, and my guest is Karen Swallow Pryor. She is a research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She is also the author of several books. Uh, Some of her most recent work include a book called On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books, and she is also um, another one of her recent um, projects was being a co-editor on the book Cultural Engagement Crash, Co- Crash Course on Contemporary Issues, and she has contributed to many other books as well. Her writing has appeared in things such as Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, and so on and so forth, and many other things as well. And I'm really excited to be uh, joining her conversation or joining her today in conversation, just as we talk about writing and we talk about reading as well and really just do do a deep dive into that uh, but before we get into that conversation i want to let you know that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend sam massey and if you have any audio or video needs be sure to hit up sam for any of those things and uh if you're listening to this podcast don't forget to hit if you're listening on spotify hit the follow button or subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening as well and without any further wait, here's my conversation with Karen Swallow Pryor. Well, Karen, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today and to just talk a little bit about books and reading and all of that good stuff. I'm always willing to talk (laughs) about books. Technology problems aside, technology is my nemesis, but books are my strength. (laughs) Yes. And and I'm always just curious to just hear... just hear people's stories and understand uh, people's whys. And I'm just curious if you could just take me back to like whenever you first got interested in books and what, what made you so interested in just pursuing this and reading? Well, I have loved reading as long as I can remember. I mean, some of my earliest memories are of being read to by my parents, um, particularly my mother. Um, there's a family story about my mother being somewhere and my dad putting me to bed and him reading the story to me and he got something wrong. He didn't do it the way that my mother did it. <laughs> so, you know, it was something like the care, the mouse or whatever uh, says, and my mother always pronounced it or my dad just did it a different way. And so I chastised him. Um, I can actually remember reading on my own with my finger, you know, pointing to the words. And so I just was always the proverbial girl with her nose in a book. Um, and so I just grew up reading. It's a, it's a great gift and a blessing. So it's just always been there. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm sure you've noticed as I've noticed as well too, is that, uh, is that there's not a ton of people who seem to like enjoy reading as much as I think that there, as there would be. And I'm just curious, 
uh, you know, just in, in your journey, have you seen any common things that, that maybe um, might detract people from reading? Yeah, I mean, of course, I grew up um, before there were video games and the internet. Um, and so there weren't as many choices for entertainment. And of course, now we live in a completely different world where there is a lot to do that's entertaining. And there's a lot to do even that involves stories um, that is not necessarily reading. It could be games or movies or, um, you know, things I probably don't even know about because I, I still just mainly read. But um, so I do think that there's more co competition for our attention. And then what happens is that um, quality deep reading actually gets harder to do. I've noticed, you know, I teach college. And so even among English majors who are the students who, who love stories um, or love writing, um, I'm noticing that more and more they don't love reading as much as they used to. You know, they, they, they maybe want to major in English because they want to write or they want to create video games, but reading is harder for them. Um, they still, you know, they're still students who love it. And I, you know, I'm thankful for that, but it, it's definitely a challenge even for those who want to read and love to read because our attention spans are shrinking and our ability to engage with difficult time consuming texts is just being challenged all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I one of the things that I've noticed though, whether it be, you know, if reading or reading or watching stuff on YouTube is that there's something very, there's something very unique about reading that it just seems like no, nothing, nothing else offers what reading can. And I was just wondering if you could just speak to that a little bit, because like whenever I'm reading stuff, whenever I'm reading stories, and I don't know if it's the detail or whatever it is, mm -hmm. but it just seems like reading is just such a, such a form that is able to capture so much more. Yeah, there's this, um, I mean, I've written a little bit about this. I, I wrote an, uh, a few years ago an article um, at The Atlantic um, called Reading, How Reading Makes Us More Human. Um, and I write about this also in a chapter in my book, Booked Literature and the Soul of Me, on the, a chapter on, on Charles Dickens' novel, Great Expectations, which I love. There's just something you know, we, we can talk about it in, in Christian terms, we can talk about it in wider, more secular terms, but there's something very spiritual, something very human, something very magical, actually, about the ability to see these black marks on a white page that translate into words, that translate into ideas, and that we can see these lines um, and they turn into thoughts in our mind. Uh, th there's just something that is so profound about that. Um, in more theological terms, we can think about the fact that, that we are made in the image of God and one of the names of God, of Christ, is Word, which is the Logos and that we read in John 1.1. 1, 1. Um, so there's something actually in our very human nature that is attuned toward the act of reading, um, not just literal reading like we're talking about, but even kind of just the act of interpretation um, and reading those squiggly or, or uh, angled lines uh, and marks on a paper is, is an act of interpretation um, to translate the lines to letters and the letters to words and then the words to sentences and the sentences to ideas. Um, animals can't do that. Even, even, you know, though some animals might learn 
signs and communicate in some way. Um, animals can't read great expectations or a tale of two cities and then talk about them on a podcast. It's, it's something about being made in the image of God that is reflected in our ability to read and our delight in reading. That's a, that's a very, uh, I'd never thought of that before. And so that's just a very intriguing idea. Can, um, can you just expound on that a little bit more? Sure. Um, well, another way of thinking about this in, in a theological way is uh, to think about how God reveals himself throughout the biblical narrative and throughout Christian and church history, Ju the Judeo-Christian history. Uh, he reveal, he, he creates through words, he reveals himself through speaking, through words, but even, even within the broader category of language itself, um, there's something about the written word. Um, the way that he put his word on stone tablets for us to read and to be preserved. And the way, again, that Christ is called the word, which is something, uh, the word logos in, in, in John 1, 1, not only means logical, which is the most direct um, descendant of that word, but even all of sort of rationality and, and the way that, uh, that, the order of the universe is logical and rational is part of God's nature as the word. Um, words that are written are ones that are, are, are really written in stone, metaphorically speaking. Um, so there's, and even our entire Western culture and, and is built on this idea of having things in writing um, from uh, the Magna Carta all the way to the Constitution. So even not just in our biblical history, but also in the history of, of government and freedom and democracy um, and education and literacy, so much of this depends on the human ability to write words, read them, and preserve them in some you know, semi-permanent way, whether it's stone or paper or parchment or even, you know, a digital medium uh, that we read on the screen. Mm -hmm. I, I want to go back to something that you said um, earlier, and you talked about uh, people's uh, high quality reading skill being lowered. And I think, uh, you know, for, for myself, I could say that that's probably been impacted. And even for people who are listening, what can we do to continue to, to build up that skill, to build up that muscle of reading well? That's an excellent question. And I, I want to actually, before I answer that, I want to give a confession because I talked about how I grew up loving reading and, re, you know, my, with my nose in the book. Um, but I also am involved in digital media and social media. And I read, you know, here we are doing a podcast. And so I have lived before uh, the digital age and during it and in the midst of it as we are. And I have seen myself and experienced myself how my own mind and attention span and way of thinking has, has changed because of digital media. Uh, and for all of the gifts that it gives us, I can sense my own attention span shrinking and my own need to grab uh, grab the phone and check for the notifications on my social media, which of course, you know, you, you can, you can, there, lot, there has been a lot written about um, how the people who designed these uh, platforms know what they're doing when they try to entice us and get us addicted and so forth. So it's not an accident. Um, all that to say that the struggle to read deeply and to read well is real. I think it's 
one for all of us, uh, myself included. And so I want to encourage people that just like any other practice or habits, good or bad, we can improve it and deepen it. And so being able to read deeply and to read well and to read reflectively is something that does improve with time and practice. Um, we have to be intentional about it. Um, the, the easiest top sort of tips that I can give for that is to number one, devote time to it, whether it's 20 minutes a day of just picking up a book and reading that, a, a good work of literature. Um, and when you are doing that, rule number two, and this is actually the hardest, I think, for most of us today, is to read slowly. Screen reading is designed to encourage us to skim, to move our eyes quickly across the screen, to glance at that ad, to check out that notification that's popped up. Reading a book, even the Bible, <laughs> um, is, is something that requires us to read slowly and attentively, reflectively, even stopping to reread a sentence or a word. Or if you read a word and you don't know the definition, to look it up or mark it to check later. And, and that's another tip that I give. So I've got number one, set time aside to, to read uh, good books. Number two, when you're doing that, read slowly. And number three is mark that book. Or, or write in a notebook, do something that sort of engages you and deepens your memory and interaction with the text by, uh, by writing your, uh, your, uh, on your own in response to it. Um, and uh, understand that the kind of reading that we do when we read good, good literature or the Bible itself is very much the opposite of the reading we do when we're reading Twitter or Facebook or a blog or a news article. Those things are all designed to be skimmed and to be read quickly and to be moved on, you know, put aside so we can move on to the next thing. But deep reflective reading is the opposite of all that. What, what do you find whenever you practice that reflective reading that you talked about? You know, one of the things that I find, and I don't even know how to articulate it, but I can, it's, it's, I can actually feel my brain relax kind of you know there's just something about not checking those notifications or not scrolling sometimes if i'm scrolling through my twitter feed i i actually feel myself getting dizzy um after a few minutes but when you're holding a book and i and i know some people like to read on kindle and so forth and 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 that's fine i don't you know i, I do think there is a different kind of experience when you're holding a book but um when you're reading something that is long and linear and plain it doesn't have ads and pop-ups and notifications on the side. Uh, there's just something different that happens to your brain as it um, gets immersed into these words and into this sort of linear kind of thinking, uh, which is connected to that logos of John 1.1, which is, again, the opposite of the binging and the pinging and the bouncing from tweet to tweet and notification to notification. So for me, what happens in sort of a physical or physiological level is I just feel my brain engaging with that text differently. And then of course, all the magical things that we talked about before happen too. And yeah, you know, I get to engage my imagination or stop and think about this idea or make a connection or ask a question or look up a word because it's one that I don't know. Um, it, it's just a much more intellectual um, 
exercise rather than sort of that visceral, like, oh, did somebody respond to my tweet reaction that we get when I check my notifications? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've heard you talk about whenever it comes to reading well is you talk about reading widely and you talk about reading um, pers from perspectives in books that, that may not be um, exactly what you believe or exactly what you agree with. Can you just talk about just the importance of that? Because I completely agree. And whenever I heard you talk about it, I'm like, yes, this is so important. And I'm just, I would just love for you to talk more about that. Oh, I love to talk about that. Um, so it, it, I, I mentioned earlier my first book, Booked Literature in the Soul of Me, where I, I wrote about the magic of reading. Um, and in the first chapter of that book, I, I talk about John Milton, uh, the 17th century poet, parliamentarian, and Puritan in England, who um, talked in a, in a very important pamphlet for the modern age uh, about uh, books promiscuously read. What Milton was arguing in this treatise was that Christians, and in particular he was writing to his own conservative Puritan Christians of his time, that they should read widely. The word promiscuous at that time just meant like intermingled and indiscriminately mixed, and that they should read not just the works that that support their theological convictions or their political beliefs, but to read other works and challenge their beliefs. Um, and so my whole book, that whole book is devoted to the idea of reading promiscuously, to read, especially if we're Christians, to read, you know, great books that don't necessarily support a Christian worldview or a, a biblical understanding of, of things, but to read them in order to be exposed to these ideas, to critique them, to learn from them, to enlarge our perspectives, um, and to just not not just just assume that what we believe is what everyone believes or to not even understand what other people believe, but rather to challenge our faith and to challenge our thinking by uh, reading widely. Talk, talk about the difference that you've seen in yourself from whenever maybe that you that you only read things that you believed with or things that you agreed with to today of now reading more widely. What's the difference that you've seen in yourself? Hmm. Well, I've always read widely, um, so it's, you know, I, I don't know that I have that experience. In fact, I mean, I grew up in a Christian home, became a mm -hmm. Christian at a young age, and grew up in the church, um, uh, but actually kind of was not, part of it is beca because of my age, but also just, I think, because of my, uh, where I grew up in a, in a secular liberal part of the country. Um, I grew up outside of evangelical subculture, uh, and so they're actually, it's only in recent years that I've begun reading Christian books by Christian writers. I, you know, I mean, modern Christian books. I mean, yeah. a lot of the great yeah. writers of history were Christians. So that's a part of the subculture that I've actually not been part of. And so I think that's part of um, kind of what I bring to this discussion is that my mind and my habits were formed by great books. And so when I began being exposed to a lot of Christian writing, you know, especially a couple of de decades ago, it seemed to me so inferior and so shallow and superficial that I just didn't bother to read it. Now, I will say that I think that we're in a better place um, in the past few years where Christians are reading more widely and they are writing things of, of greater depth and um, 
and again, I'm talking about, you know, compared to a few decades ago, not, you know, the Puritans were always writing of great depth, but something in the modern, you know, Christians in the modern age just kind of uh, began to reflect, I think, the more shallow parts of the prevailing surrounding culture than, than necessarily the riches that are found in the church. So uh, for me, it's been almost an opposite experience of kind of discovering um, modern Christian writers who are of, of good quality uh, because I, you know, I, I wasn't really exposed to them in my reading life as a, as a young person and a, and a, um, a young scholar. Yeah. What are some other reading practices that you have that are maybe maybe counterintuitive, like the reading widely practice that we talked about? Or yeah, what what are some other practices like that that you that you have? Yeah, I I don't. A lot of people will ask uh, ask me like how many books I read a year or a week or whatever, and and that's something that I I actually I have no idea, and I'm not even interested. I'm not a numbers person. Um, I think more about quality than quantity. Uh, so I read, you know, so I read very um, very instinctively whatever I'm in the mood for. Um, oftentimes my reading is dictated by the classes that I'm teaching at the time or the or the writing projects that I'm working on. Um, but apart from those, I do like to to um, to to focus on one book at a time. I mean, sometimes I have a numerous books going for my reading for my uh, teaching and writing, but I love I still strive for that experience that I had, you know, from the very beginning of really getting lost in the world of a book um, until that book is done. Um, yeah. So I, I think that that is, uh, you know, maybe a personal preference, but I do think that many of us have lost that experience or never even had that experience of getting lost in a good book. And that's something I think we should strive for. Mm -hmm. what, what are your thoughts on rereading? Oh, I think rereading is is wonderful. There are many books that I reread, um, and good books. I, one of the tests of what makes a good book a good book is that it is um, infinitely rereadable. I mean, the same could be said. I like to draw, draw analogies to film. Uh, there are some movies that you would watch and and you would enjoy, but there would be no reason to watch it again because once you know what happens, um, there's nothing left. But there are other films that are so artistically done that you watch them not to find out what happened but you watch them to find to pay attention to the details of how that story unfolds so any work um that is worthwhile i think or most you know i mean there are some works that we read just to get the information out of but the works that are really good um or even uh, achieve greatness are the ones that reveal new things to us with every rereading. And I think that's a wonderful practice. I mean, obviously the same is very true of the Bible. Um, and that's sort of the gold standard of the, of the rereadable book. Yeah. Talk, talk to me, uh, about what you take away from nonfiction books and fiction books and kind of what's the difference between the two. Sure. Um, I'm going to actually reframe the question a little bit um, and then come back to that one. So one of the things that's important in judging what we would call a work of literature, and nonfiction can be very literary, is that, uh, that it's not just focused on content, but also on form. So in other words, a literary work is good, not only because of what it tells us, 
um, but because of how it tells us. So for um, a fictional story, that would be, you know, the way the story unfolds, the way it's told is very compelling and artful. For nonfiction, it would be that the writing is good and evocative um, and it causes us to think more deeply because of the way that it's written. So that makes it rereadable. So in both cases, good fiction and good nonfiction, the form of the book, um, the way, and of course, literature is an art of language. So the way that it uses words um, is artful enough that it invites rereading and causes us to reflect and see the world around us differently. Um, now, the exact opposite of that would be something like an instruction manual or a news article where you get all the information that you need and you don't need to return to it. I mean, unless you need that information again, um, because that's all about the content and not the form. Its purpose exists just to impart these facts or instructions to you and that's all and it fulfills that function well. Um, a work that is literary is one that uh, in which the form contributes to the content. Now I'm going to ask a question. I'm not going to hold you to your answer, but what are, mm -hmm. what are some, what are some books that you would say, and they could be classics, they could be recent, whatever it is. What are some books that you would say, wow, it is important for, um, you know, for the average person to read these books. They just take away so much from this. You learn so much from this. Hmm. Well, I'll start with one of my favorite works of nonfiction, uh, which actually illuminates some of the ideas that we've been talking about here. Um, and that is Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is, was written in 1985 or 1986. So in many ways is very dated. It's focused on the age of television. Uh, and we've far surpassed that age, even though we still have television. However, what Postman does in that book is to talk about the difference between a literate society, which we had for roughly 500 years, and a post-literate society, which is the sort of he calls it the age of television, but now it's the digital age. And he talks about form and content in some of the ways that we've talked about here, how there are certain mediums like television that are designed to be entertaining and they really can't be anything but versus books that, you know, have a different sort of form. So they actually work on our brains differently. So that's an important book. Uh, it's written in a polemical style. So he's a little bit uh, extreme. Uh, he, he wants to provoke a reaction and provoke thought. So you don't have to agree with everything that he says to kind of be instructed by it um, and to think about these things. Uh, again, that's the form that he uses. So Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman is a longtime favorite. Um, uh, my favorite fictional works are tend to definitely be classics. Um, of course, I write, I have two books written about my favorite, some of my favorite books, and uh, these are ones I've written about. Um, Jane Eyre is a favorite. Pride and Prejudice is a favorite. Uh, Great Expectations is a favorite. Uh, Tess of the Durbervilles, um, and, uh, and Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. These are all, I think they're almost all 19th century novels, uh, but they're pretty accessible for most people. Um, 
especially Jane Eyre, I think is, is the one that it seems, even though it's, you know, a couple of hundred years old, almost, um, it seems very modern and contemporary. And as a matter of fact, I've, it's on my mind because I just finished writing my introduction for a new edition that'll be coming out early next year. So if you haven't read it, you can wait until my edition comes out. <laughs> yeah. C can you talk about the importance of, of reading things that are, you know, that are 20 years old, 100 years old, hundreds of years old, because I think there is a strong tendency to go, oh, hey, this book just came out this year. This book was just <laughs> on the New York Times bestseller list. But what, what have you learned? What's the benefit that you've gained from reading works of literature that, that have aged? Hmm. You know, I've been thinking about that a lot in the past couple of years, was I'd say the last four years, especially because our culture is becoming so polarized. I think we all know that politically and otherwise, and even COVID has revealed a lot more of our divisions. And I approach uh, these the things that divide us and the divisions themselves very differently. Um, and I think it's really because I've been reading widely for so long. Um, so I have this capacity that comes, I think, from books um, about other people and other times and other places and lots of them that helps me to understand someone that I might disagree with or understand why two different factions might disagree with one another, to understand why this pandemic while it is terrible and scary in some ways, is really just old news in human history, that human history has encountered far worse uh, of these kinds of viruses uh, and plagues throughout its history. And this is just a little blip in the screen. Um, that perspective, I guess, is what I'm talking about, that very, very wide perspective and that deep sense of empathy um, that, that comes, I think, from reading reading books from different times and places that reveal to us the differences between people, but more importantly, um, what makes books like these so great is the fact that they reveal the unchanging aspects of the human condition and, and human relationships. Um, we really don't change. I, I want to ask, and you, you maybe alluded to it a little bit earlier, um, but what, what have you seen is the relationship between your ability and your desire to read and your ability to write really well? Hmm, that's a great question. I've always considered myself a reader first um, and a writer way <laughs> second. Uh, maybe even a, you know, a writer third after being a teacher. Um, and I, again, I, I don't know I don't know how I could write at all uh, without having uh, my mind immersed in the the world of words that that people far more skilled than I have created, and to have the sense of language that comes from great writers, um, and uh, yeah, it, it's just it, it's an old saying, but it's old because it's so true. Um, if you want to be a good writer, be a good reader. Um, if you think about it, I mean, again, to go back to something I said earlier, um, literature is an art form that uses words. And if you want to be an artist in that form, you have to understand words. Um, so you actually, you don't become a, a good painter um, just by painting not okay i i'm not a, i'm not a painter so i don't really know but you actually have to look at other 
paintings, you have to look at uh, the works, you have to look at, you have to understand how paint work itself works. You have to understand the medium in order to use the medium well. It's true really of any art or any craft. And so there's no better way to understand how words work than to study uh, words as they are used by others and the people who use them well. Um, you don't want to, you know, adapt, adopt the habits of people who use them not very well. What, what have you learned or what has helped you take the things that you've read and either um, put it, moved it into your writing or you moved it into your teaching or even, um, even expanding upon the original author's ideas into your own ideas? Like what has helped you with that? Hmm. Um, I think it's, I don't know that it, it's ideas as much as it is, um, the form of the words. I, I, I know, for example, because I have spent so much of my life studying and reading 18th century literature, which is very uh, verbose, the sentence structure and syntax is complicated and long. And I definitely have adopted some of those practices into my writing, which is not necessarily good. Um, but I, I, I understand the way that I think in syntactically um, and grammatically comes from being immersed in that world. And so um, I picked that up but then, and then I try to adapt it. So for example, in On Reading Well, uh, as I was writing that book, I realized, you know, I have a tendency to write pretty long sentences. So I was very intentional about um, interrupting those long sentences with short, punchy sentences that kind of distilled the meaning down. Um, and so I worked hard to do that, to, to balance those long sentences with, with shorter, simpler ones. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's something that I have uh, learned um, through my own reading, that, that there needs to be balance in the way that one writes. Well, just as we're wrapping up, what other uh, final pieces of advice would you would you give to someone whenever it concerns uh, just reading or writing or just learning in general? Hmm. So I think that the, the it, I don't know if it's advice as much as it is encouragement um, to not be frustrated if you pick up you know say a great work of literature um, you know something you think oh I should read this I should challenge myself to not be encouraged if you find it hard or challenging or, or uh, that you're slow at it, to realize that, um, that reading well is like a muscle. Um, and if, if, if you're training for a marathon, you don't start out on the first day riding, running 26 miles, you actually run one mile and then two miles and then three miles. Reading is the same way, it, it is a skill. It's the basic skill that we learn when we're five years old. And we can, most of us can do it, not everyone, um, but most, most of us can do it. And the more we do it and the more we practice with intention, just like exercise, we can actually get better at it. Um, so work at getting better at it and, and realize that if you feel it's challenging or you feel like you're slow or it's hard, that that's actually you getting better at it. Um, and so stick with it. And if, if you pick it, if you pick up a book that you just, um, it's really a slog and you, you hate it so much that you're not doing it, then put it down and pick up another one. <laughs> There's too many books. So just pick one that you will enjoy. Yes. Yep. 
I agree. Well, Karen, this has been great. I know people are going to want to continue to learn from you and pick up your books. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? The easiest way to, to kind of get a snapshot of what I'm doing and what I have is my website, karenswallowprior.com. You can check out um, uh, my books and some articles there. And I'm, I spend far too much time on Twitter. So you can find me there at K-S-P-R-I-O-R, K-S-Prior. Um, and uh, feel free to follow or engage with me there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Karen, thanks again so much for being on the podcast today. And again, if you want to continue to learn from her, buy some of her books, follow her on social media to figure out all the different stuff that she's working on recently as well, or some of the future projects that she may be working on as well. Also, just want to remind you, if you have any audio or video needs, be sure to hit up Sam Massey for any of those things. He is the creator of this wonderful music that you're listening to right now. And thank you just so much again for, for listening. And if you have uh, any suggestions or any topics that you would love for us to cover on the podcast, be sure to hit me up on my Instagram and you can just go ahead and DM me. And my handle is Caleb J. Mason. And I would love to just hear from you. Would love to hear from your what you're learning, whether that be books or podcasts or whatever it might be, or things that you would love um, just to cover on the podcast as well. Again, thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.